You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello, and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Diane Brady. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the first Pride March in New York City, where a historic police raid at the Stonewall Inn sparked riots a year earlier. A lot has changed for people in the LGBTQ plus community. The U.S. Supreme Court has upheld the right to marry a same-sex partner and most recently to be protected against discrimination at work. But courts don't create an inclusive work culture. Companies do. More important, people do. And on that front, the McKinsey Quarterly has just published a global study about the unique challenges that LGBTQ plus employees still face. I'm joined by two colleagues who helped to lead this global study. Diana Ellsworth is a partner in the Atlanta office where Maytal Gutman is a senior manager of diversity and inclusion. Diana, Maytal, welcome. Diana, tell us a little more about the study. Thanks, Diane. You know, as you mentioned, you know, we've seen a lot of movement uh, in the U.S. and around the world in recent years related to the rights of the LGBTQ plus community. A lot of steps forward, in some cases, some steps backwards. Um, but we know that this community is underrepresented still uh, in organizations and particularly in leadership levels of organizations. And so we wanted to dig in and understand um, both from a survey and also just from stories and anecdotes and experiences of LGBTQ plus leaders about the challenges uh, that that employees face so that we could understand and and help to address those challenges, help to shape the way organizations and leaders think about this segment of their employees and how to support them. Maytel, what stood out for you? I mean, one thing that's interesting is uh, underrepresented. Not everybody necessarily comes out at work, do they? No. In fact, we found that only about uh, three out of four, so one in four LGBTQ plus of our respondents are not broadly out at work. And so even though there is more visibility, uh, there's more conversation, uh, there are more and more people that are identifying as LGBTQ, we're, we're seeing that still in the workplace, especially for younger colleagues, junior colleagues, for women, and for people outside of the U.S. and Europe, that they are less likely to be out at work. It's interesting because the younger generation, I would have thought, would be more open about that. Is that just, to some extent, your place on the ladder? We think so. Um, That's part of uh, what it is, is when you are joining a workplace, you're still trying to navigate, you know, even if they have all the right policies in place, uh, you're still trying to navigate how do you bring your authentic self to work. And so you look around at senior leadership you look around at your managers, you look for the visible cues uh, in your office or with your clients about how much you can be out and and how open. And unfortunately, what we found is that people are still too often the onlys. They're the only LGBTQ plus person um, on their team or at their clients. Um, and, And that they are still more likely to uh, experience microaggressions. They're still more likely to hear uh, derogatory remarks or have to uh, correct people's assumptions about 
their personal lives. So Diana, tell me a little more about microaggressions. Um, What exactly does that tend to look like? So it can look a a variety of different ways. Uh, You know, inherent in the notion of the microaggression, these these aren't sort of the egregious, uh, flagrant sort of acts of discrimination that certainly exist as well. But these are the the small pieces that add up over time. A lot of that can do with sort of making assumptions about somebody's personal life outside of work. Uh, it can be around sort of people feeling like they need to to back up what they say even more to be taken as credibly as someone else would be. And these small microaggressions just, they impact somebody's experience, right, as they sort of pile up one on top of another. So let me go to the fact that women are less likely to come out and and to speak with both of you about that. Um, Diane, I'm going to go to you first. I mean, tell me about your own experience in the workplace. And were you reluctant yourself to talk about, you know, sexual orientation is not something most of us feel like we need to disclose. It's optional. Well, I think what's really striking to people who are not part of the LGBTQ plus community themselves sometimes is realizing that coming out isn't this nice, clean thing that you decide you're going to do one day and then it's done. Mm -hmm. It's actually, it's a big part of sort of your daily or your weekly experience. Uh, In most workplaces, you're, you're, communicating with different team members, you're communicating with, depending what your role is, customers or vendors or partners. Um, And so it's something that sort of happens in an on and ongoing way. You know, in our research, we found that nearly half of our respondents said that they come out at work at least once a week. And actually one in 10 said they do it on a daily basis. So when somebody asks, you know, who your husband is, you have to correct them when you're talking to a client. Is that really the incidents where these things come up? Exactly. Exactly. And so that's where when I think about it for myself, I mean, it just made such a big difference to really be out and out sort of broadly at work. And I think, you know, it's on two different levels. One, it just takes out some of that sort of effort and sort of background stress of of filtering, right? Which is what you sort of inherently have to do if you're not out. Because while you say, you know, for people who are straight, they don't have to come out. They don't, but they also can very casually mention who they went to a movie with or, you know, who lives with them um, in a way that they don't think about it as coming out as straight, but that's actually exactly what it is. And so, you know, for me, once I was out and could very openly talk about who I was dating or who became my wife, uh, it just changed it just changed that dynamic. It took out that sort of filter and that background stress. And on the positive side, it just really created a different level of connection with people, right? I was I was suddenly being a much fuller, more authentic, more open version of myself, which just contributed to much deeper relationships uh, in the workplace. Were you senior in your career or fairly junior? So for me, it was really, I mean, I think about, I've been at McKinsey over 10 years now, and I was out when I joined McKinsey. Mm. Um, and so you know, for someone who sort of read on my resume that I was a part of the LGBTQ plus student association um, from business school, it was sort of there. But then again, if I think about sort of very few people actually read my resume, right? So it was much more a matter of conversation after conversation, day after day, week after week, you know, in some cases, year after year, it, you know, it was, it was sort of a trickling out um, 
from the time I joined. So, Mittal, I'd love to hear about your story and also the fact that you handled diversity and inclusion. And, you know, as Diana said, you can look on a resume and see somebody's affiliation, for example, but it it's not something that jumps out at you. It's not something you can necessarily recruit for. And um, so tell me a little bit more about, you know, both your own experience and what you've noticed as you talk about this with colleagues and with clients as well. Yeah. It's such an interesting point because coming out, you know, you think about there's coming out in the workplace, there's coming out to your family, there's even coming out to yourself. I mean, it, the, I like that it's an active verb because it is a process. And so for some, some of our folks, they're not, um, they might not yet be out yet to their families, but they want to be out at work or vice versa. So I think it is important to say like, you don't have to come out but we want to create an environment where if you are out, if you do want to be out, that that you can. For me, um, I, I, you know, my parents found out that I was queer when I was 14. And I remember, you know, seeing the first time, the first time I ever saw my dad cry. And they would identify as liberal. You know, my dad's a rabbi in the South, but he has gay friends. Um even if, even though they would identify as liberal, it, it was different when it was their own child. And what I've come to understand is that what felt different for them was they were almost mourning what they thought my life would be like, and that they were nervous that American society and workplaces would not be welcoming, and so that my life would be much harder than what they hoped it would be. What's what's been amazing is you know their journey of uh, also coming out and and being comfortable and seeing how coming you know, out cut, as parents of coming out as parents exactly coming out right. as parents of an LGBTQ child and also then as um, my dad's become a big big advocate um, he actually married my wife and I um, several years ago. And, and a huge part of that, I think, actually has been – now, this is – there's been tremendous progress in the U.S. in the past couple of decades. Uh, but seeing how, no, you know, I, I still – I'm married. I have a baby. I'm, I'm pregnant with our second one. Um, and Congratulations. In, thank you. Thank you. And in, in, in the workplace, in places like McKinsey that have – you know, McKinsey is not the only place. I mean, it's it's almost become table stakes for many of the large Fortune 500 companies um, that you need to be inclusive and that you yeah. they are celebrating their LGBTQ folks. So that it to me, it has not felt like a hindrance at all in uh, my career, and and actually has been something that has truly been celebrated and and. So, you know, that I think it's incredibly, um, it's, it's an incredibly exciting time. Now there's a lot more work to be done, but seeing how, um, you, you can, you can be an out professional and that is something that is, that is celebrated by companies. Um, it's not something that we, we would have thought would have been true, you know, 20 years ago. Well, and it's a good point, Diana, that the zeitgeist is changing. You know, we have, whether it's the pandemic, we have Black Lives Matter, the Supreme Court decision. How how do you think that those events affect LGBTQ plus issues? Yeah, so I think, I mean, this is just such a 
complicated time we're living in right now. I think one thing that really sort of stands out is just this notion of sort of different aspects of people's identity and certainly intersectionality. We're sort of living in this world now, um, this moment, particularly in the U.S., but even globally, where, you know, here we are in in June, which is Pride Month, um, and yet here we are in the midst of a real reckoning on racial equity. And this idea that these communities aren't aren't separate from one another. They intersect and they're members of of multiple underrepresented groups who face sort of increased discrimination or increased disadvantage because of that. And I think this is just a moment where we're sort of acutely aware of how those different pieces come together. And I think about the importance of having allies. You know, that's one thing that has really been driven home to me by the Black Lives Matters um, movement. And I think about it in the context of LGBTQ+. I want to get to some of the voices, because you interviewed one of the great things about this study to me is is all the stories. It's very much the stories and the voices of the people and the experiences in the workplace. And it really does drive home that good policies and protections aren't enough. I want to start with a senior executive at TD Bank, and it's a Canadian bank that was really on the cutting edge, uh, being a Canadian, I remember in the early 90s, they came out with, you know, policies around same-sex marriage. Here he is talking about um, a discovery that the CEO made that it just was not enough. Because TD was one of the first major banks in Canada that offered same-sex benefits in 1994 to our employees. At the time, we had about 50,000 employees in the bank. He asked HR, what's the what's take-up rate? It was 90 was abysmal, 90, because people thought Big Brother was watching them. What's that one-fifth of 1% of TD's workforce at the time, which I'm guessing (laughs) was not a true representation of, uh, you know, the people that could have taken advantage of those uh, benefits. Uh, Diana, what was the CEO doing wrong? And and more important, perhaps, what did he start doing right? So, you know, I think that's that's a great way to question. What did he start doing right? Because I think the reality is... He probably sort of was in his core sort of accepting and embracing to begin with. What I don't think he was doing or what it sounds like he wasn't was sort of demonstrating that in a visible, authentic way that sort of set the tone for the organization. And and so there are a lot of reasons why people are sort of hesitant and they are looking for those signs that say this is a safe space, a supportive space, uh, an inclusive space. And and that sign really does need to come from the top. It's not sufficient to just come from the top, but it is critical that that it does come from the top and that people do know that, you know, discrimination, sort of a lack of respect, that won't be tolerated. And in fact, the opposite is is sort of required and, and encouraged. So Maytel, let's pretend I'm a CEO and I come to you. What what advice do you have for me? I've I've sent out the message that this is important. What else? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to Diana's point, it was, it was interesting. We we saw some of this in our own um, in our own offices, where I would say to the CEO, just having the policies um, on paper is incredibly important, but it, it's not enough, and that you need to role model what does inclusion look like. So that's showing up, uh, that's being visible, that's public displays, both internally and externally. Of uh, of of support, so even just the casual 
you know, mentioning somebody's significant other and partner sends a really strong signal, especially to the LGBTQ employee who themselves might not yet be out. We, it, it reminds me of a story that we have, uh, we, we celebrate a global day of pink where we basically ask our allies to wear pinks, wear something pink uh, in April to show their support for the LGBTQ plus community. And we've had offices where you would expect because the legal um, landscape or even just the cultural landscape of the country that they're in, you would expect them to be very LGBTQ plus friendly. But what we found in some of our surveys, there's a couple offices where really stood out as surprising that that they weren't. And when we dug a little bit deeper, it wasn't the policies, it was the, you know, are there enough visible senior leaders who are making, taking a stance and, and showing um, showing support? What was really exciting was when we then kind of did an intervention, had a couple, it was just a handful of people who said, this is not right. We want to make sure that our LGBTQ plus folks feel included that um, they participated in Day of Pink, they actually marched in pride. Uh, they made sure that there was uh, communications about how important uh, being inclusive and our, our GLAM, our LGBTQ plus uh, network is. And in only one year, the responses to the question about how open is your office to LGBTQ plus people jumped like tw- like 20 or 30 points. And so to me, it's just such a good reminder that a lot of change can happen um, in a short amount of time if you're sending the right signals, uh, particularly from leadership, but really throughout uh, the entire organization. It's it's there's a ton of opportunities for allies to just kind of show up. The opposite of that's very interesting too, because I know that it's a global study, and there are of course parts of the world where you know it's actually illegal to be in a same sex relationship, and yet. There are still ways to show support. I'm thinking of, was it a a nail polish station that you had, Diana? So yeah, one of the stories that we heard was around, uh, similar to our day in pink, one of the stories that we heard was uh, an organization that that encouraged employees to to paint a fingernail purple um, in, in support of the community and sort of set up these, as you referenced them, sort of nail polish stations at multiple places to make it you know, really easy. This is a, a 30 second exercise, right? During your day on your, on your way to the, the coffee bar to, to stop and paint a fingernail purple. Um, but people were sort of amazed by, by how many people did it. And it created a little bit of a, you know, viral, I think, energy and momentum, uh, and just this visible sign of support for the community that mm-hmm. again, the, the interviewer talked about it, just, it was striking how much this small thing, really sort of set the stage in a different way for what the level of support was within the broad employee base. So I want to get to another one of the voices, which is really around leadership. And, you know, as a leader, of course, you are a role model, but, you know, sexual orientation can be private, uh, you know, identity can be private, and it creates an extra pressure and responsibility. So I'm I want to talk, uh, refer to one woman who came out in a very public way about a decade ago in a video to help LGBTQ plus kids that were at risk of suicide. And she recalls how it was transformative. Here she is. We've got to be advocates. Uh, we have a duty and obligation to not just be out, but to use our 
platforms as visible LGBTI role models to help change the world. So, Diana, talk a little bit about that. She, I know she was 52 at the time. Um, is that quite common? So I think, you know, you find people come out at all sorts of different sort of ages and life stages and tenures and organizations. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see how that changes over time as well. I think it's it's not uncommon, Beth's experience. So a duty and an obligation, Diana, do you think that's that's fair? I think a lot of people do feel that way. Um, maybe maybe an opportunity is perhaps the the more positive spin on obligation. But I think we heard from a lot of our survey respondents and, and interviewees, and I can certainly say personally, I feel the same way. There is a real opportunity to demonstrate for others uh, that that you can be happy, satisfied, successful. Um, and out. And I think that's both for, it's for younger employees. Uh, it also is for people who just have greater challenges. I mean, I referenced intersectionality before. There's a piece of it that's that. There's also a piece of it that is, you know, the trans experience today is very different uh, than it is for other members of the LGBTQ plus community who are cisgender, who who identify with the same gender they were born with. Um, and so as we think about that whole different set of experiences, there's something really powerful about there being visible role models who who are willing to talk about it and be seen and and create a sense of you are not the only, you know, whoever you are, whatever you're feeling, uh, there's there's a positive path forward. Let me yeah. just go ahead, uh, Natal. No, I just want to add, I, I think it is so, it's such a good point. And you know, you think about the broader context of where we are and the conversations that we're having in the workplace are pretty courageous right now and 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 even uncomfortable, um, whether we're talking about LGBTQ plus or we're talking about race or we're talking about intersectionality. You know, not not everybody feels like they have the right vocabulary and tools to have those conversations. But I am quite amazed at um, that it gives a sense of purpose uh, to people when they do um, when they do come out that even though like it, it, what Diana referenced earlier in the conversation of, you know, people still are coming out every week and still reference that uh, they're oftentimes almost 40% of the time uh, in, in the last month, at least one of the coming out experiences was uncomfortable. So even for people like Diana and myself who are who are very out, you, it's still a conscious decision every time we come out because it's, it's not guaranteed to be a comfortable conversation. But to me, and I think to many people, the idea that you make it easier for the next person, uh, that gives a lot of... Um, to me, it gives a lot of kind of that extra oomph of, of uh, courage to be able to have those uncomfortable conversations and, and be out when sometimes it might just be feel easier not to. Well, it's let's unpack intersectionality for a second, because I think that's a term certainly that uh, is relatively new to me. And it, it really is in some ways about the fact that we we all have multiple identities. And maybe one of the ways to set up this part is to to refer to a clip where we're talking with 
somebody who was in London who really didn't become aware of racial bias um, until he moved to the U.S. Let's take a listen. I've ne- I never realized the color of my skin when I lived in the U.K., Maybe I was very lucky. It was a very inclusive environment. My corporate environment was very inclusive. Uh, but when I moved to the U.S. for the very first time, I felt the color of my skin. I felt like um, a second-class citizen. That surprise you at all, Diana? I think that people are constantly having to navigate just different environments. And so, I, you know, I haven't ever worked in the U.K. It certainly you know, his experience sounds quite positive. I think if anything, that would be the side that surprises me. The fact that he was quite conscious of the color of his skin in the U.S. does not surprise me. Um, And the fact that, you know, he was navigating that while also navigating his experience as a gay man, you know, it, it adds complexity to it uh, and, and challenge to the, to the choices he makes, you know, on a daily, if not hourly basis. Let me ask about the Supreme Court decision, because I know that, I mean, I believe I recall that it was something like half of, of U.S. and major U.S. employers have policies in place. What do you think is going to change, both in terms of the pressure, the legal environment? Are you getting any more interest from clients, for example, in addressing these issues as a result of that decision? I think the impact of the Supreme Court decision cannot be sort of understated or underemphasized. I think the impact is going to be incredibly broad. It's going to have impact on employers, like you suggested. There are, you know, many states where this fundamentally changes uh, the way people are going to think about uh, precedent related to to employment, but also things like housing and education and health care. Uh, you know, at its at its core, this decision gives individuals across the U.S recourse at the federal level that they didn't previously have. And so it, it's a it's a game changer. So yeah. Uh, and I, I would just add I think that it it I totally agree and it's it almost was like to me it felt like wow not we were not expecting it and and what a great um surprise uh, just some great news coming out of the Supreme Court. Um but in some ways it, it's like it still doesn't feel like quite enough. It is the it is a recognition that um, employees shouldn't be discriminating against LGBTQ people. But it, to me, it also emphasized the need for broader legislation to make sure that we're not um, that that it is more institutionalized in our laws and policies. Um, as Diana said, beyond uh, employment. Uh, it's one of the reasons we've signed on as supporters of the Equality Act to make sure that uh, there's not discrimination across many different dimensions. I mean, mm-hmm. just the Friday beforehand, uh, there was a ruling that the the there was the um, uh, the administration basically said that they would not include uh, transgender as a protected status um, in the Affordable Care Act. So, I, you know, I think it is it is incredibly important in the Supreme Court. I mean, I'm when we, we actually my wife and I got married on the steps of the Supreme Court because we were so grateful um, at their decisions. And it's the reason we were able to get married when she was not a U.S. citizen. Um, but, you know, I think there's just we need much more uh, legislative protection as well. Well, and it does feel like uh, that, that transgender is really one of the 
newer areas that people are coming to terms with. And I want to just uh, hear from one other voice. And I'll give the description that she gives, actually. Mother, divorced, I'm queer, lesbian, Latinx, and Mexican. Um, let's listen to what she has to say about how we can make the workplace more inclusive for people who are transgender and other identities. Don't use the term guys. Use hey friends, hi folks, hey everyone, um, hey you all. Those are the sorts of things that really like are not necessarily financially uh, a heavy lift. They can be done relatively easily. The, the heavy lifts can be further topics of discussion in the years to come. But there's a lot of simple work that could be happening that's not happening. You know, it's interesting. And Maytel, I want to talk to you about this because we do think a lot about cost and we think about the cost of, of doing this. I'd like to think about the cost of not doing it. You know, it's not just an employee engagement tool. Why is it important to have these kinds of policies and practices? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, one of the big surprises to me out of the research was we asked um, if uh, if people had not taken a job or not pursued a company because they felt that it was not an inclusive work environment. And uh, 58% of LGBTQ respondents said that they had not taken a job. Uh, but what was really surprising, I think, to to several of us was the uh, high level. So 40% of all respondents so, said that they would pass up a job um, if they didn't feel that the company was inclusive enough. So this is something that like, having an inclusive culture is incredibly important to uh, employees. And so you're, if you don't have an inclusive culture, um, one, you're leaving talent on the table. You're not going to get the best talent. Two, if they do come, they're less likely to be engaged or to stay. They're, three, they're less likely to be able to authentically bring themselves to work and and fully be able to uh, uh, participate and engage and get kind of the best out of them. So, you know, companies are really, it, it's one reason uh, that I think we've seen that more diversity in the workplace and especially at the top yields better financial results, that this is not something that's just a, a nice to have a good thing to do, which it is, but it's actually good for business. And and to, to Anna's point, I mean, or to, sorry, to, to, to the, um, mm -hmm. to her point that, that it doesn't have to cost it. Some of this doesn't have to cost much, right? Like, I mean, I, I, I what, one of the interesting things now that everybody's on Zoom virtually is that it allows people to have their names and their pronouns next to their names on uh, on their uh, screen names, and so allows for more people to signal inclusion, to uh, be less likely to misgender people, and doing that is free. So there's there's a lot that can be done um, to create that inclusive culture. Well, and, and I do want to um, tell listeners, I believe we have um, the full videos of these interviews are on the website. Is that correct? Yes, we have a selection of the of the videos of the interviews that we did that we will have sort of available for people to to see. And again, there's something about reading the quotes. There's something better about hearing it. But to truly sort of see the the faces behind the experiences, I think, is is quite powerful.
Well, and I want to, I know we have to sum up. And so what's interesting, I'll just share sort of a personal experience is we tend to look at these issues in the context of the people who are living them. And it's a much wider ecosystem. Mital, you mentioned your parents and, um, you know, it's certainly something that has come into my life through my children, but even my dad, I remember in the late eighties, he was a carpet salesman and moment of pride for our family was seeing him march in the pride parade because he installed commercial carpet at the first AIDS hospice. And the pride that he felt, the pride that our family felt, these really are much bigger, broader issues than simply the people who are living them. Yeah, it's such an important point. Um, I remember we did a LGBTQ plus training, an allyship training in in, uh, one of our offices. And we asked people to raise their hand if they felt comfortable, if they themselves identify as LGBTQ+. And a handful of people raised their hand. And then we said, well, who has family members? And about half the group raised their hand. And then we asked, well, who has close friends uh, and family? And I would say almost 90% of, of um, the room raised their hand. So the concept of inclusion and who is part of the LGBTQ plus community, it's so much broader than um, than the the people themselves or the employee themselves. One of the things I've, I've found to be a trend or that people are talking much more about recently are, are parents who have LGBTQ plus children. And actually we have a growing number of parents whose children are trans and have come to us and said, I'm so proud to be working here and so grateful for our inclusive culture and for our, our um, offerings and our resources because I know that I belong uh, and that my family belongs. And so that's, I think that to your point, this is just a, um, those who identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community is just growing and uh, that matters to people. So let's, let's end with a call to action of some sort or some takeaway, you know, pivoting off the study. And as I will, again, please go to the McKinsey quarterly to get, I recommend it highly, a terrific look at insights on what the current experience is, but for listeners, what, uh, you know, what would you have them do? Could be one thing, two things. Give us some advice or inspiration to head off and make a difference. Diane, I'm going to start with you. So I might I might say two things. I think one is just at the very personal and individual level, which is one way you sort of influence a, an inclusive culture. And that is about sort of how do you give the visible signs? How do you use the inclusive language? How do you, you know, Put a sticker that shows your sort of ally support in your office window. If we, if we end up back in offices with windows at some point, um, how do you attend events? But I think there's something as an individual which is really just about being sort of visible in your support for the LGBTQ plus community. And then I think the second thing sort of at the organizational level is to say, how do we make the only experience that Maytal referenced earlier sort of rarer? How do we actually strengthen our talent pipeline as it comes to LGBTQ plus employees? And that's everything from thinking more creatively about sort of where you source your talent at the beginning to really looking at your performance management processes and, and making sure there isn't bias in them in some ways. It's about 
making sure employees are sort of sponsored uh, by more senior members of the organization. And I joke, most of us like to sort of mentor and sponsor sort of mini-me's, people who remind us of ourselves when we were their age. Uh, the problem with that is if if you have a pretty non-diverse senior leadership team, it, it just becomes self-fulfilling if you don't actively sort of break that cycle and encourage folks to mentor and sponsor folks different from themselves. But so I think there's a real role in organization saying, let us look across our whole talent pipeline and figure out how do we just drive greater diversity through through it's the true. whole thing. Yeah, we do tend to recognize excellence in a forum that uh, reminds us of ourselves, don't we? Mittal, mm-hmm. how about you? Call to action. Yeah, you know, I think we're in a pivotal moment in history. Um, you know, COVID is impacting uh, us globally, certainly racial justice issues in the U.S. and and beyond. And what I think that is doing is we're, we're kind of realizing we might all be in the same storm, uh, but we have different boats and some of those boats are not as well equipped as others or aren't as, they're not all created equal. And at the same time, we are still at home. We're connecting with our colleagues physically in their home. And so the boundaries of our lives are, are much harder to separate and so to me, I think this is an opportunity to lean into that, to check in with folks, to listen, to let them bring their authentic parts of their lives, um, regardless of or because of their different identities, to to really be open to that and to encourage those conversations, uh, to lean into the vulnerability um, and, and to have those brave and courageous conversations uh, this is, I think, such a unique time for us to to be able to listen to each other, to learn, and then to to take action. Uh, wise words, Maital. Uh, thank you both very much for your time. Thank you so much for having us. We really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much. Great. And if you want to hear more, uh, go to the McKinsey Quarterly. I'm Diane Brady. Thanks. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.